Let's continue on in our study of Exodus chapter 5 and see what the Lord has for us. We've been studying through this book for a while and we'll continue verse by verse and chapter by chapter and we are learning how to study scripture as God wants us to, which is to look at what the words mean and and uh, how they fit together and try to figure out basically what it says, but we we realize that we have not fulfilled our task until we have applied the way God intends his work to be applied and the way he intends his scripture to be applied and that is to point us to Jesus Christ. So how does a scripture like this in Exodus 5, a a story about running out of or not having enough straw to make bricks while an, an evil dictator demands that they continue to make bricks, how does a story like this point us to Jesus? Let's look expectantly as we begin reading in verse 10 of Exodus chapter 5. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Now if you weren't here last week, this is what we learned. Uh, Moses said to Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, you have too much time on your hands uh, wanting this kind of liberty. And so I demand that you start making bricks without straw. Straw is necessary to bond the bricks together. It produces a humic acid that makes them hard. He said, you go get your own straw, but I want you to continue to make the same number of bricks. And he increased the harshness of their labor. So he says in verse 11, go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent saying, complete your work, your daily task each day as when there was straw. The foremen of the people of Israel whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them were beaten and were asked, Why have you done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. But he said, you're idle, you're idle. That's why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge. Because you've made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a word, a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to his people. And you have not delivered your people at all. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, would you open our eyes, not only to understand this story and what it means, what is happening, what is historically accurate, but we pray 
that we would understand your intention for this passage to drive us to Christ, even as you did these people, even as you did Moses. Drive us to Christ that we might experience from him total salvation. In Jesus' name we pray it. God's people said together, amen. I have a very good friend in Augusta, Georgia. His name is Gary Garner, and he is a born-again Roman Catholic believer. It's a contagious faith. His joy in Christ is contagious. And a few years ago, he wrote down his, his testimony. It's a rather dramatic testimony of how he came to Christ. He was a totally irreligious person. I mean, he had this in his deepest part of his being. He understood that there was a God somewhere, but he didn't want anything to do with him and didn't have a need for him and it felt like he didn't have a need for him. Never talked to him. It seemed to be working for him because he became a very successful home builder in the mid-80s in Atlanta and got to the point he was making custom homes for all the elite of Atlanta, including the owner of the Falcons and the CEO of AT&T and others. He was building in this very small, exclusive neighborhood, and someone eventually commissioned him to, to build a home which the architect said would rival Frank Lloyd Wright. They, they, they took a knoll in this neighborhood that no one else had dared to build on. They said it was unbuildable. It was 55 feet above all of the rest of the houses, above the street. And the idea was to build this house on top of the knoll and not disturb the trees around it so that it looked like someone had taken a house and just set it down on top of it. Problem was, he got into the middle of the project and found what probably others had found before. There was a gigantic boulder in the middle of it. And so it took many large pieces of equipment and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to get that boulder out of the place just to start building. Then he got to the end of the project, many cost overruns. He was losing sleep at night. He was afraid he was going to go bankrupt, and, but he had this hope that he could, he could win enough, he could, he could make enough on the house to get himself upright again. But the last thing to do was to put in a driveway. And he thought, since this is supposed to be a statement, I'm not going to make a driveway a serpentine like this to work its way up the mountain. I'm going to go straight up. Straight up the 55-foot uh, knoll and, and uh, so much concrete that it had to be reinforced. He poured it six inches steep, steep uh, th- thick, and it was, it was very steep. The problem was when it dried, no one could get a vehicle up it. He was determined to show that it could be done, so he backed his car up to the end of the street, got a running start, hit it about 70 miles an hour, did make it up the driveway, but couldn't stop at the end. He got airborne on the end and said, see, it works. It wasn't going to work. He was so desperate by this time, he was losing sleep, he was in a panic that he thought about taking his life. Every time he went under a bridge, he said, he would look at the abutment and he would consciously have to turn the wheel away from the abutment because he thought, if I just crash my car, my family will be okay with my life insurance policy. In the middle of that, his wife had gotten interested in the gospel. And so there was a retreat, a marriage retreat for her church, and she invited him to come. He said, I don't have anything else 
to do life is miserable enough as it is, why don't I just make myself more miserable by going to a marriage retreat? He went and the, the pastor at the retreat just shared a meal with him. And he didn't talk to him about his need for Christ. He just shared with Gary what Christ had done for him. And he talked about how Christ had saved him in many ways and how Christ had made him happy. Now, he knew this pastor. He knew the pastor didn't have a fancy sports car like he did. The pastor didn't even own his own home. And he thought, how in the world is that man happy? He has something I don't have. And in his last moment of despair, he just cried out to Jesus and said, whatever you've got, please give it to me because I don't have anything else. For the first time in weeks, he slept. He felt like God had answered his prayer. He started giving more and more of his needs to Jesus. And then he knew what he had to do. He had to go and jackhammer out that driveway and build it back the way it was, even though it was going to bankrupt him. People gathered around the neighborhood, around, gathered around, said, what in the world are you doing? He said, I'm removing that concrete so I can make the driveway the way it's supposed to be. They said, well, how do you feel about that? He said, I feel the greatest peace. Jesus has given it to me. Oh, so you have a financial plan. I have no financial plan, he said. I just know Jesus is my peace. He did lose everything financially, but he gained eternity and a contagious joy. And he says in his book, I've never had a bad day since. He's had a life of some suffering, sure, but he knew what hopelessness and despair was and how Jesus saved him from it. Now, you have some need in your life and will certainly if you don't know what it is now. And it can be any manner of expressed needs that God brings up to you, but all of them will, all of them will or should convince you that you don't have the resources to meet them. And if you don't have the resources to meet a financial need or to solve a problem with a driveway or to heal your marriage or to deal with your child, then you certainly don't have what you need to face eternity with a righteous God. And all of those needs are ultimately for the sake of sending you to the only one who can provide, the only one who can supply, the one who is a complete Savior for now and into eternity. And then the rest is response. And that's what this passage, just like every other passage in Scripture does, it drives you to the end of yourself that you might see that Christ is your everything, that you might take him as your whole Savior. But what we tend to do in those times of need, what we tend to do is turn to other saviors. And we turn usually to one of three. There are many more, I'm sure. But we tend to turn to one of three saviors. Work or shame or blame. Work or shame or blame. That's, the, that's what we encounter in the passage. When, the, when these Israelite slaves are told that they're not going to be given the the basic building materials that they needed to make bricks. 
they were in despair because their first thought was, we have to go gather more straw. I just want to make a statement that's an excursus here, but something that will reinforce your confidence in Scripture. You notice when, when uh, they, there are two levels, two tiers of management mentioned in the slave labor force here. There are the taskmasters, Pharaoh's taskmasters, and then the Israelite foremen. So Pharaoh says, make them create bricks without straw. The taskmasters tell the Israelite foremen, and then they pass it on to the rest of the slaves. Even those critical of Scripture, those who say the Bible is not inspired by God, those of critical of Scripture who have looked at archaeology have said, we must admit that here the Bible is amazingly accurate. That in their archaeological records, they've discovered a two-tiered system. There are those of the Egyptians who are the taskmasters, called the taskmasters in our text. And then there are those slaves who are elevated to managerial responsibility called foremen. We find that in the historical record. Furthermore, we found in archaeological digs corners of buildings that are made with straw, with, uh, with bricks that have no straw in them. What we have is accurate for us. It also helps us understand what's happening. The taskmasters tell the foreman. The foreman tell the slaves. The foreman then complain. Where are we going to get this straw? We have to gather it ourselves. Pharaoh, your men used to bring it to us. You still demand the same quota, but we can't meet that quota because we have to go get the straw, bring it to the slaves. The slaves then, it takes that much more time to make the bricks. That's the pattern in Scripture. It's a pattern in Scripture of people getting to the end of their own resources and God making sure they do. There's the, the story of Adam and Eve that we've been studying in the catechism in the evening. The story of Adam and Eve when they realize that they are not God and they are no contest for God and that they are exposed before Him and so they run from Him. And then there's the story of, of the, the giant named Goliath of the Philistines who threatens the people of Israel. And God makes sure that they understand that they have no resources with which to battle the Philistines. And then he does what? He raises up a little shepherd boy named David without any armor and he kills him with one rock to the forehead. And there's a the time that Sisera takes on takes on the, the, the children of Israel and he comes at them with iron chariots and, and horses and God raises up a woman named Deborah to be their leader. He causes the chariots to get stuck in the mud and a, a woman to defeat the king. And then there's the, the time that Joshua was making headway against an enemy, and, and the, and, but if, if and nightfall was coming, and they knew as soon as nightfall came, they would not make headway anymore. They would surely lose, and so God made the sun stand still. And then there was a time that there were 5,000 people in front of Jesus, another time 4,000 people in front of Jesus. It was nightfall. They were hungry. They didn't have any food. He said, bring me what you have, five loaves, two fishes, seven loaves, two fishes. He brings it. He multiplies it. Here's the time they're in the storm. There's no hope. They're going to be swallowed up by the storm. He calms the storm. They needed to pay their taxes. They couldn't pay the taxes. He brought them money in a fish's mouth. 
God is in the habit of creating need so that he can supply it. God is in the habit of driving us to the end of ourselves, even allowing us to become hungry, to be desperate, to be on the verge of or in the middle of bankruptcy so that he can turn us to himself and supply our needs and say, I'm a total savior. I take care of these material needs as well as your eternal ones. Now these Israelites had already prayed. They'd prayed in chapter 2. They said, please deliver us from our slavery. And Moses showed up. It was a miracle. But here they don't do the same thing. They need straw to make bricks. And they could have prayed, God give us straw to make bricks. The one who parted the Red Sea, the one who brought money in a fish's mouth, the one who multiplied loaves and fishes, the one who caused chariots to get stuck in the mud, the one who caused the sun to stand still could have made barley grow up between their, between their toes. But they turn instead to their Savior work and they try to work harder. It may be where you are today. It was where our church was recently. We had a need. Did God not know about that need? Did it catch him by surprise from the foundation of the world? He knew that need was necessary by which to glorify himself. Our temptation might be to work harder to create by human machination the solution to our own problem. But he gives us needs at times that, that outstrip our resources in order that we might turn to him. What is that need for you? Where is that place in which you are going to work harder? It's a, it's a need in your relationship with your spouse or with your child. And you're going to work harder. You're going to read a shelf full of books. And you're going to pay as, you're going to pay as much money as you possibly can to a therapist to cure, to cure it. Books and therapists are gifts of God. They're not the total solution. You have a financial need, so you're going to work harder. You have, a, you have a, a need with anxiety or depression. You, you, you have a need at work. You, what is your need? It hasn't caught God off guard. He is the one who controls every creature and every action and has allowed you to become hungry in this spot that you might turn to Christ for your supply. He wants to teach you a bigger lesson than just paying your house payment or, or meeting that staffing need or seeing a relationship put together. He wants you to see that he is your whole savior. This is a small thing for him compared to providing your redemption into all of eternity. There's another savior we turn to and that savior is shame. And we turn to it in a, in a way that doesn't appear to be rational to people who have not been shamed. It doesn't appear to be rational to people who have not been traumatized. But here is a traumatized people. These are people who have been 
abused and enslaved for 400 plus years. They have come to adopt their identity as slaves. Damage has been done to them. Damage has been done to their souls, to their bodies, and to their thinking. And if you have suffered trauma, something that might not even be considered trauma if somebody else were to experience it, but it has been traumatizing to you, abuse or a a situation, the the trauma of, of living after a particular historical situation. There's a sense in which all Americans are traumatized. There's a sense in which Memphians are traumatized. And so we have to be aware of the kind of thinking that we sometimes resort to, that our default is shame. Verses 15 to 18, I wanted you to see how the the Israelite slaves default to that identity. Even though they had prayed, Lord, set us free from our slavery. And Moses had come. Their default is still to being, thinking of themselves as slaves. They say, why do you, to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given your servants. And behold, your servants are beaten. Now here the the people of God have been told, you are servants of the living God. They have heard Moses say as he's gone into into Pharaoh's court, let my people go that they might serve me in the, uh, at the mountain, at the holy mountain, into their, their new uh, place, the promised land. These are my servants. They've heard that identity over and over again. They've heard that they are servants of God. They are not slaves to Pharaoh, but... When they face a need that outstrips their resources, they resort to the identity that has been imposed by evil on them. And they call themselves servants of Pharaoh. Now, I don't in any way want to imply that there is something wrong with you, that you are at fault, that you are being a sinner or a rebel by defaulting to that kind of shame or by defaulting to that kind, of, that kind of idea if you have been traumatized. If you have been traumatized by evil or an evil person, you have been victimized by that situation, by that person. And so your, effect, your thinking has been affected But the gospel tells you, you are not permanently so. And the gospel tells you, you must not allow that to form your identity. That diagnosis or even that label that somebody has put on you. You, if you have embraced Jesus Christ or if you embrace Jesus Christ, you are not a servant of anyone. You are not a slave to anyone. You are are not a diagnosis. You are not an affliction. You are not a mistake, though someone tells you you are. You instead are a servant of God, a servant he calls a friend. 
You're a child of God. The Bible says you have not been given a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. You've been given a spirit of adoption by which you cry out, Abba, Father. You're one over whom the Father sings. You're made in the image of God. The one the Son sets free is free indeed. You were, yes, you and I were slaves of sin. We're told that in Romans 6 we were we were slave to sin that leads to death. We are ashamed of those things that uh, we once did. We are enslaved by passions, Paul says elsewhere. We once were captive to sin. And certainly it can be true that we act like slaves when we give in to sin. We can act like we are captives of the evil one. We can return as a dog does to vomit. We can become slaves of that which masters us, but we are not and we never have excuse to the bible tells us instead consider yourself dead to sin logizomai is the word logic logically conclude you are not a slave to fear you are not a slave to sin you are not a slave to the devil's false thinking you are a child of god you are loved by him you cannot be unloved by him because you are joined to christ and god can't unlove his son so what is it to turn to shame some of us feel that we have to turn back to shame we have to allow ourselves to continually be punished to be to be abused i've had many people through the years tell me this is happening in my life because i deserve it this is what was appointed to me I did this or that, or I was, one person has even said, I was born this way. I was born such a mistake that I am getting what I deserve. And maybe there will come a day when I've suffered enough that I can be released from it. It's a lie from the evil one. As Brent Stenberg has taught me recently, our leader of the Christian Psychological Center, he he loves to recall the story of Genesis 3 where God goes after his Adam and Eve and he says, he says, why did you hide from me? And they said, because we were ashamed, because we were naked. And God says, who told you that? I never told you to be ashamed. I never told you to feel shame for the body I made in my image. Who told you that? It could not have been me. That God seeks them. That God wove for them skins to cover their shame. That God pursued them, pursued us, and pursues us in Christ, the same Messiah who, who stooped down to the woman caught in adultery. It saved her from being stoned and then asks her, where are your accusers? I don't condemn you. Some of you are defaulting to that shame. I need to punish myself more. I need to atone for this. I am not worthy. And instead you need to hear the gospel which says, in and of yourself, 
There's nothing by which you can save yourself, atone for your past. You can't even forgive yourself and, and really change anything. Come to me. I am the one who heals. I am the one who removes your shame. I am the one who put it on the cross. And I am the one who was raised for your glory. There's another false savior we turn to. We turn to work. We turn to shame. We turn to blame. You notice these Hebrew foremen, when they met with Pharaoh and he said, not only is he not going to give them more straw, he said, you're lazy, you're idle, you must do the work. And then the text tells us in verses 19 and following that these Hebrew foremen waited for Moses and Aaron. And the Hebrew is really graphic here. It is that they waited for, for Moses and Aaron in order to pounce on them. And they didn't do so physically. But they had strong words for them. Verse 21, May the Lord look on you and judge you. May you be damned, Moses and Aaron, because of what you've done to us. You not only have not set us free from Egypt, you've made us obnoxious and you've made us a stench before Pharaoh. You've made our situation worse. You've given him a sword by which to kill us. These blows land heavily on Moses. He wants to quit. That's a phenomenon that, it's a phenomenon that we engage in, isn't it? When we, when we are in a corner, when we are desperate, when we've faced our needs, we sometimes look for someone to blame. And in our heart of hearts, we want to blame God, but we don't have the nerve to blame God. So we blame the person who represents God, the, the person who is closest in our life to representing God. It can be a parent, it can be a spouse, it can be a school teacher, it can be a headmaster, it can, be, it can be a political figure, it can be a pastor, it can be an elder. And we land those blows on them. And those blows can be toxic. There can be hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of people. There are thousands and thousands of people, surely, in, in Egypt who are still hopeful that Moses is going, to, is going to lead them out. But this handful of foremen make Aaron, make Moses want to quit. You know that experience as a leader. It doesn't matter many how many more are for you. It's the toxic words and actions of just a few who can dishearten you and make you want to despair. And so what does Moses do? Moses looks around for somebody to blame. And he can't find anybody except God. And so he says, God, you have done evil to this people. And what does God say? Verse 1 of chapter 6. Now you'll see what I'll do to Pharaoh. God doesn't say, Moses, how could you dare say such a disrespectful thing to me? Because of God's gracious response and because of Moses' honest outpouring of his frustration to God, we see how we should react in times of need. Be honest with God. Tell him that you blame him. 
Tell him you're angry with him. It's a pattern of Scripture. Here it is in in, in Moses' life, we know it from many psalms. We can think of Psalm 44 or 77. Why have you rejected us? You can think about Jeremiah and Lamentations 3. You've turned my teeth to, to, to dust by giving me rocks to eat. Or Habakkuk 2. You have done an evil thing by giving us into the hands of our enemy. And you know what's amazing about those things? Jonah. You know what's amazing about those texts of Scripture? They're in Scripture. The Holy Spirit directed that those things be written down and the father hands them to you in your time of desperation and need and he says when you don't know what to say to me here read this to me tell me I've rejected you tell me I'm unfair I'm unjust tell it to me because that will draw you to me it's so like one time my dad in one of my, my experiences of anxiety, which the Lord used to draw me to himself, he, and my dad in desperation said, here, uh, you must be angry at somebody. Take this, this newspaper, roll it up, and start hitting me with it, imagining that I'm those, those people that you're mad about. So I just whacked him to pieces until I was exhausted and fell in his arms. That's what he wanted. That's what your father wants. Your father doesn't, the, the, the Lord doesn't have a fragile ego. You express your heart of hearts and all of its irrationality, even its disrespect, and fall into his arms. Don't blame someone else. Certainly if someone has justly offended you, there's, there's just action to be taken, but you'll grow in bitterness if you don't take it ultimately to the Lord. It's the Lord Jesus who said he causes all of your sin, all of your bruises to fall on him that he might heal and save you. A few years ago, I read a book by a woman named Susanna Cahalan. She's not a Christian. And she related the, the, the terrible story of encountering some kind of virus or autoimmune disease that left her into a, in a coma. Some people even concluded she was demon-possessed. She was engaged to a man who was going to be her husband, and uh, he never gave up on her. He never left her side. This is what she wrote about him. I had my Savior. His name was Stephen. People called him the Susanna Whisperer because he seemed to sense what was unspoken. This was after she was coming out of her coma and she was learning to readjust to the world. At the party, he stood by my side, never once letting me stray too far from his watchful gaze. When people who hadn't been debriefed came up to chat with me, he took the reins in the conversation, not something that he normally laid back California cool Stephen did, but something that was now necessary. When I couldn't speak, he spoke for me. Like my plastic smile, Stephen became another layer in my protective armor. He also provided me with security and meaning in a very difficult time in my life. I asked him many times why he stayed, and he always said the same thing, because I love you. I wanted to. 
and I knew that you were in there. No matter how damaged I had been, he loved me enough to see me still somewhere inside. You are made in the image of God, and God sees it. No matter what anyone else has said to you or done to you, you can never get rid of that identity. And when you give your life to Christ, and Christ joins your life to his, you become an adopted child of God, upon whom he looks with the same love and approval as he sees in his son. He sees you in there. No matter what you're telling yourself, no matter what the devil is telling you, no matter what people are telling you, no matter what life is telling you, Jesus is your Savior. And he will never, ever leave your side, even as we heard in the children's message. Do you believe it? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we turn from all false saviors to you. We turn to you for salvation from our sin which would damn us eternally should we die in it. We turn from you, from all false um, dictates of work, all false labels that would shame us, all false strategies of blame. We turn from them to you. For some, they're turning to you for the very first time. Save them, Jesus. Save them. Others of us are turning to you for the thousandth time. Continue to save us. And in so doing, get a name for your glorious grace. In Jesus' name we pray it. God's people said, amen.